You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Thanks, Shane. Shane's right. I have uh, prepared a sermon uh, on this text. Just the last few minutes here. Um, It's good to be with you this morning, friends. Uh, If you don't know me, I'm Adam, one of the pastors, uh, one of the two pastors here at RCC. And I just want to jump on before we start. I want to come in and and second Megan's uh, excitement uh, and just her commendation to come and join us on September 20th uh, in person. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, even just walking in this morning and seeing everybody set up and everybody here just talking and being together, uh, just honestly just set my heart on fire. And there's a reason for that. Uh, I was thinking about this quote from a Christian author, his name's Donald Whitney. I wanted to share this with you briefly before we get into the text. This is what he says about uh, fellowship or worship together. He says, there's an element of worship in Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. Uh, there are some graces and blessings that God gives only in meeting together with other believers. Um, and already, just singing our songs with other believers here, I'm, I'm already tasting and feasting on that. And uh, one thing I've noticed, some of you may have a really a big appetite for that now, and some of you may have a small appetite for that right now. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone a time without food, but when you stop eating, you're hungry initially, but then that hunger shrinks. And it's actually because if you don't eat for a while, your stomach actually starts to shrink, and your appetite uh, diminishes. And I think that's kind of what's happened to some of us a little bit is like we've had this atrophy of appetite a little bit for the things of God, especially uh, this worship gathering together. So whether your uh, hunger is really big for this right now or even kind of small, uh, that's okay. Um, uh, we'd encourage you to come on September 20th and uh, pray you'll join us to feast on God and his word and worship together. So looking forward to that. Again, uh, Megan said you'll get more details from that coming up soon. Uh, if you are on a screen, you're going to notice I'm going to give you less love today. I usually am like locked in, but I'm, I'm like, well, I got some good looking people here with me. So I'm going to be like scanning. Uh, yeah, scanning here. But anyway, so I'll be back and forth a little bit just so you know. But uh, if you're recently joining us and jumping in with us, we are uh, been going through the book of First and Second Samuel. And we've titled this series the past five months, The King is Coming. The King's Coming. And First Samuel describes a people that have this deep inner longing for security, safety, direction that a good king can give them. Uh, but we're finding that the best Israel can offer are lining up, and they can't be the king they need. There are some moments of glimmer and uh, glimpsing the king they need, but ultimately they're soon disappointed, right? They're anticipating a coming king. And as we've been walking with the Israelites through this anticipation, we, are, we actually know who, we're, who they're looking forward to and who we have gotten to see as King Jesus. But it's funny enough, even though we actually have seen the perfect king, we quickly actually find ourselves daydreaming of defecting our worship to other little kings in our life. And uh, it's just my prayer today that really 1 Samuel 21 is just going to rekindle and reignite our hearts with uh, the deep generosity of our God. In this passage, we're not going to see a really flattering picture. You just heard Shane uh, talking. We don't see a really flattering picture of David here. He's, he's desperate. He's on the run. Uh, he's doing anything to stay alive, including um, pretending to be uh, uh, insane and deception. 
And, and what I love about this passage, though, is that because David isn't shining real brightly over here, we actually get to have our attention pointed more clearly to uh, to God. And this is I've titled this sermon uh, the the Messiah's daily mercy. And so that's what I want to focus our attention on is is God's daily mercy. As you see, David, he may not deserve a lot of good from God here, but, but God is still generous uh, toward David. And that's what I want us to see this morning. This big idea that I want us to wrap around in this passage is that when you and I don't deserve it, God dispenses daily generosity. When we don't deserve it, God dispenses daily generosity. And there are at least three kind of daily generosities that, uh, that we're going to see in this passage. There's daily mercy, there's daily presence, and daily salvation. Daily mercy, daily presence, daily salvation. That David experiences, but more importantly, uh, fortunately for us, that we experience in an even greater way. So let me pray for our time, and uh, we'll jump in. Father, you've said that your word is living and active, sharper than any uh, two-edged sword. It pierces the division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So I'm coming to ask you to do what you've already said your word does, discern our hearts. I pray that we wouldn't read the Bible, but the Bible would read us. And God, that your spirit would come in and change your people, ignite our hearts in worship for a generous, daily, saving God. Do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. We have daily mercy. I want to look at this in verses 1 through 5. So if you've been with us, we pick up uh, on verses 1 through 5. Uh, last week, David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul wants him dead, uh, and he has the power to actually make it happen. He's at the end of the rope, and he'll do anything he can to survive. And you, better, you probably know what it's like to like feel like you're in survival mode, right? A time where you're just truly desperate, where there's nothing else you can focus on because this one thing is just blocking your vision. Your priorities get real small, real fast when you're in survival mode, don't they? And uh, all David is thinking about now, he's just thinking about, I need to get food, I need to get a sword, and I just need to hightail it as far away from King Saul as I can. And we're going to see that throughout this whole chapter, David's desperation is driving him to this deceitfulness. But David's desperation and deceit help us see something really clearly, uh, the daily mercy of a God that is sustaining him. And this is really good news for us because uh, this might be news for you, but you're often not the hero of your story, your life story, right? Uh, and we are often the ones in sin and in desperation and in need of mercy. So on the run, David stops at a town called Nob. It's just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he rolls up on this priest, uh, Himelech. I love how Shane pronounces the words in Hebrew because he actually studies Hebrew. So he pronounces Hebrew better than I do. So I appreciate you on that, Shane. And uh, the priest says this. Or sorry, David says this to the priest. He says, The king's charged me with a matter. He said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which I sent you and which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So, <laughs> kind of, kind of an interesting, you know, kind of vague general story here of deception. Uh, he isn't really on the king's business. The king's uh, actually following him to kill him. Uh, he's being hunted. And David gets straight to business. He says, now, what do you have on hand? Verse 3, give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So David's on the run. He's going a long distance. I need some calories. I need some gluten uh, before I can really get after it. But there's no bread to be found. This is what the priest says. He says, I have no common bread on hand, 
but only the holy bread. Uh, now you might be thinking, what? Holy bread? What is that? Um, it's, it's not just a nice like loaf of Ezekiel bread at Trader Joe's. Uh, this holy bread was actually set out. It's commanded by God in uh, Leviticus 24. And every week the priest would set out 12 fresh loaves of bread in this tabernacle, the holy place. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember or have been to Golden Corral. I used to go every week. And every 15 minutes, they would set out this, like, hot, steamy, like, tray of these golden, buttery, like, biscuits. You guys remember those? Anybody? Can I get an amen? Okay. A few people. It's like this, right? Setting out this beautiful, hot, steamy uh, bread. Uh, And it was a reminder. It wasn't because God was hungry. It was a symbol of a reminder of God's covenant with Israel and the 12 tribes that they had. It was a reminder of God's constant mercy and relationship with them. Now, uh, bread comes out. They put fresh stuff out every week. God doesn't eat it. So what happens to the old bread? The priests are the ones that get to eat it. uh, God's very specific in Leviticus 24. Only the priests can eat this holy bread in the holy place. So when David asked for this bread, if you know your Bible, you're meant to be like, Ahimelech, dude, the answer is no, don't do it. God's word says don't, this is just for you. Um, David's up the creek, just, you don't have anything for him. But he doesn't do that. The priest gives it to him anyways. And he knows it's, even though he knows it's technically not for David to have. So we'd be tempted, I think, in interpreting this, right, to say, okay, David's deceptive, this priest is disobeying this ceremonial law here in the Bible that he obviously uh, would have known. And so we'd be tempted to interpret this and say, hey, this is just a description of what's going on, but not something that we would ever want to commend. Deception, disobeying the ceremonial law, like um, this, is, this is a description of something that went wrong, not something that went right. And this seems like a safe bet of an interpretation, but, um, but then Jesus comes into the New Testament and actually turns the interpretation, I think, that we would normally have on his head. He actually takes his story and defends it as proof and uh, to defend his own ministry. And I want to share that with you real quick. It's from Matthew 12. And Jesus' disciples, they're rolling through a field. They're plucking off heads of grain because they're hungry. Now, the problem was, this is a Sabbath day, a day where you're not supposed to work. And so the Pharisees, these very religious people, they got very uptight because their rules were being broken. And listen to what Jesus tells the Pharisees. He uses the story we're focusing on as his defense. He said to them, have you not, Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priest. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So Jesus says, hey, I'm endorsing this priest Ahimelech's judgment because he put mercy before ceremonial law. Uh, Sure, David didn't deserve the bread, and technically it wasn't supposed to be his, but he wanted to show him mercy. He wanted David to live under mercy instead of to die under keeping this ceremonial regulation. Uh, I like how Leon Morris says, he's a commentator, He says, human need must not be subjected to barren legalism. So Ahimelech, he he knew his Bible. This guy, his job was like to know the Bible and serve, uh, serve God. But more importantly, he knew God's heart. He knew the point of the law was to truly love God and to love people. And he knew... Uh, that you could be really nitpicky 
with, the, with the, um, God's word and you could actually miss the whole point for people to experience God's endless depths of mercy. And just so we're on the same page, uh, I want to give you just a quick definition of, of mercy. Make sure we're all like on the same page here. It's just definition.com, nothing fancy. Um, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or to harm. So God has the power to rightly punish us for sin, but instead he patiently bears with us and forgives us. God has the right to let us wallow in the impact and the effects of our sin, but instead he tenderly cleanses and comes and heals us and makes us new. God has the right to actually reject us because of our daily rebellion, but instead he speaks his acceptance over you and over me because of Christ every day. God does not want his uh, people to be these like Bible point dexters that just blow a whistle every time they see their sin alarm goes off, right? He desires them to reflect him, a God overflowing with abundant mercy every day. And unfortunately, if you look at a lot of Christians, even if you look at my own life today, it's evident a lot of times we forget how much daily mercy we have. Uh, some of the evidences we see of this, I think, are maybe a slowness in coming to God when we're in trial, uh, a, a really timid prayer life that, that doesn't ask God for anything big, an insecurity that automatically just assumes everyone is against you or assuming the worst in one another, or a scarcity mindset that uh, just makes us hoard instead of give freely. We're just hammering people with guilt when they mess up or you just want to change their behavior. These are some evidences of, that we have an amnesia towards God's mercy towards us. And this can happen for a lot of reasons, but I think, I was thinking of three quick reasons I want to share with you of why we kind of have this, this mercy amnesia that I think we often fall, um, fall subject to. First, we forget how much daily mercy we have. There literally is, I think you could write an almost endless list of daily mercy that you have in your life on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, you could probably sit down, if you couldn't sit down for five minutes and write out 20 things, I think that you'd be forgetting a lot of God's daily mercy that he has towards you. Even just things like delicious food and drink or a laugh with good friends or being together, getting to worship Christ together, having his word to guide us, uh, music, the comfort of a friend in trial. I mean, the, the list is endless. And I think that's why Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. Because when you see every good thing in your life as a mercy, then having a sandwich is a worship experience. Because God, I, I don't deserve this sandwich. I don't deserve this coffee. I don't deserve this friendship. And you have graciously given it to me. And so every, even the my, most minute goodness in our life becomes worship. Secondly, uh, I think we mistake God's mercy for meanness a lot. There, there are times where discomfort or lack or hardship are actually God's mercy to you. It may not feel good. I know it's hard to hear, but a lot of times it's an outpouring of God's mercy to actually form you for your best. God is never, never mean to the ones he loves. He's generous in mercy. And third, I think this is maybe for most of us happens a lot. We think we deserve it. Inherent in the word mercy is undeserved kindness. So that means our pride hates mercy. Pride says, I can only accept what I have earned with my effort and my name and my fame. So the only thing I will accept are things that I have earned or that I can convince myself that I've earned on my own effort. 
but everything good in our life is divine mercy. So when you remember, you don't deserve any of the good in your life, and, but you do have it from God. Your heart is actually not crushed, but set free in gratitude, to soar in gratitude and praise. And when we see God's daily mercies, it impacts how we see every part of our world. I want to give you a quick example um, that God just hit me with yesterday. I uh, came home early. Jen called me during a meeting. She calls me during a meeting. I know it's usually urgent. So I call back, leave. Uh, so my daughter, Sayla, had tossed my baby boy, Deacon, into the side of a bed. And he had a really big gash right by the side of his eye. Um, we pretty much knew he was going to need stitches. And I came home. And to be honest, my first reaction towards Sayla in particular was, how do I, I want to punish her. I want to discipline her. And honestly, this is my baby boy. I love him. And I love my daughter too, obviously. But, but you have hurt my son and you deserve to be punished. You hurt him and it was intentionally. She hurt him intentionally. But you know what we did? We were driving to the hospital and I was, I've been thinking about mercy a lot this week, right? <laughs> And actually, I told Selah, it was just Selah and I together, when Jen and Deke were in the hospital. And I told her, I was like, Selah, you, you, uh, you hurt my son, right? Um, you deserve to be punished. But I was thinking about my life. And I was like, I have done something much worse. My sin hasn't just pushed a little baby boy into a bed. My sin has pushed the Son of God up a hill to be crucified. And, and in my sin, he has been, he took on the wrath for me. And I was shown mercy, even though my sin pushed the Son of God to the cross. So I did something much worse, and God treated me, God was merciful to me in exchange. So I wanted to communicate that to Selah. So how do you communicate mercy to your daughter that just hurt your son? Took her to Chick-fil-A, <laughs> right? And I got to tell her, God, God Selah, you, you deserve punishment for what you did, but I'm, I'm treating you with mercy because our Savior has given us this mercy, right? And it's, this mercy, it presses into every way, every little iota of our life. If we really see it, it'll press into all our relationships, our work, everything we do. We'll be more merciful. We're merciful because our God floods us with his mercy every day. And every day we can do what Hebrews 14, 16 tells us, that uh, we can grow, we can, with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. We have daily mercy. That's point one. Let me look at uh, point two we have his daily presence. So David gets the loaves of the holy bread. He gets the golden corral bread he requested. And uh, we get more information about this bread in verse 6. Listen to this, verse 6. So the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but that bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by the hot bread on the day it is taken away. So the holy bread, it's also called the bread of the presence. Uh, this is because of what this bread is meant to symbolize. It's a symbol specifically to remind the Israelites that God has brought them into covenant relationship with them. That every week the Israelites have this fresh reminder that the holy, sovereign, eternal God of the universe has come into steadfast relationship with a tiny people. That they can know him face to face and not from afar. 
So what a blessing. They get this daily reminder of God's presence with them. And uh, for the casual onlooker to David, these loaves might just look like ordinary bread. But to David, this holy bread is a generous reminder of God's daily presence uh, with him and with his people. And we have so much more than 12 loaves of bread. We have one who actually called himself the bread of life. And more than a symbol, Jesus is God's actual presence with us. He's called Emmanuel. It means God with us. Jesus is really our true bread of the presence for the Christian. He's the one true and better reminder that God generously gives his presence with us every day. And out of all the, the daily mercies that we just went over and that we have, this one is the most precious. Today, we get to have his daily presence in the church whenever two or three of us gather together. We have his daily presence as you go through his spirit that abides in us, if you know Christ. And I fear for myself and for you as well that we often take this really for granted every day. God's daily presence becomes menial and nominal a lot of times, just an ordinary thing, because it's so regular and normal that we get to have. Uh, but for those that sought God in the scriptures, God's presence was everything. The Israelites, they spend this, they, they will do this later in the Bible. They're going to spend this incalculable amount of time and money to uh, construct this fantastic temple. And it's all for God's presence, his dwelling place. The psalmist, they, they were all about God's presence. Just, just one example from Psalm 105. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. The psalmist wanted more than anything, God's presence. In the New Testament, um, non-Christians, when it says they would walk into the Corinthian church, uh, their worship service, that they would fall down on their faces and say, God is really among you. It, it, we're, we have no reason to gather if God's presence is not with his people here, blessing us, encountering him. God's presence was their daily everything, and yet I'm afraid that sometimes we can just treat it like a daily afterthought. We can run to so many other comforts and people and solutions to life when the whole time God's presence is our greatest treasure we've already obtained in Christ that lies with you and with his people. And more than just being everything, God's presence is also weighty. I just want to give you a few examples. This is a very common theme through the Bible. With Adam and Eve, the, the garden for them was so sweet because they got to walk with God unhindered in his presence in the garden. And the expulsion was so bitter, uh, not primarily because the ground was work got really hard, which, is, which sucks, uh, or that women have a really painful childbirth, which, ladies, I know that's really sucky. Um, but actually, the worst part of the expulsion from the garden was because now they had to hide from God's presence. They were forced out because they couldn't be in God's presence and even live anymore. When Moses asked to see God, I said, God, I want to see your glory. God just said, no. Uh, Moses was like the most holy, humble dude of the day. And he says, Moses, you can't, no one can look on me and live. No one can even look at me and actually keep their life. I Isaiah, the most holy dude in Judah at the time, he had this vision, not, didn't see God in a vision, and he just cries out in shame. Uh, John, in Revelation, he sees a vision of his Savior, of Jesus, in Revelation. And the only thing he can do is just fall down. And not move. And I fear that instead of treating his daily presence as, as weighty, we can treat it just kind of like a daily trinket. Maybe even some nice words on a Hallmark card that give us a nice fuzzy feeling uh, to keep us going through the day. 
But one of, the, one of the biggest tensions in the Bible is this, that we're made to thirst and to thrive and flourish on, on God's presence. Nothing can fulfill that. Nothing can substitute that. But, but then on the other hand of that tension is how can a dirty, sinful, wayward people actually be in a holy God's presence that's so weighty? And that's why Jesus is so beautiful. He resolves this tension for us because the only person that was acceptable in God's presence actually gave it up, came down, and exchanged his place for ours so we can be in God's holy, loving presence. And if you want to see someone that is experiencing God's presence, it's someone that is consistently being changed. I was uh, thinking about this. It'd be like, I would imagine if we were meeting this week for coffee, maybe outside, not inside. I don't think coffee shops have any indoor seating yet. Soon and very soon. Please, Lord. Um, <laughs> let's say we're meeting for coffee this week. And you show up 15 minutes late. You're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. 15 minutes late. I got just, just slammed square on by a, by a bus on the way over here, a uh, Baltimore City bus, and so I'm, I'm a few minutes late. I'd be like, no, no, you're a, you're a liar. That's not true. Like, how are you standing here getting hit by a bus and you just, you look fine. Your clothes are good. Your bike's still working. Uh, you still have all your teeth. Like, you're standing here in front of me. You didn't get hit by a bus. Like, no, 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 no. I got, I got hit by a bus. I'm good. I'm here. No, no why, why do I know that, that person, why would I know you'd be lying? The reason I know you'd be lying is because you, you can't get hit by a megaton like Baltimore bus and not be changed, not have a trip to the hospital or a trip to the morgue, honestly, right? And how much more for us that if we say we are encountering the presence of the living God, can we just go day to day without being changed, right? If we are with God, if we are seeking his presence every day, we, are, we cannot help but be changed by the generous gift of his presence. So people that are experiencing God's presence are thirsting for God more and more. They're increasingly governed by his word. They're delighting in Christ's bride, his people, more and more. They're grieving over their sin more and more. They're quicker to forgive than they were last year. And you might ask, uh, this is a great question, how do I spend, how do I actually get that? How do I spend time in God's presence if, it, if it's a gift, right? And fortunately, God has actually told us. He said, uh, there are ways to encounter me on a regular basis. Uh, we often call those spiritual disciplines, just regular actions that we're to cultivate, where God says, hey, this is how you come and meet me. And this is how I want you to come to me. So if you want to experience God's presence, look for it where he's asked you to look for it. Uh, some of the main ones are prioritizing a weekly gathering with God's people, whether it be here or a gospel community. Spending regular time seeping in his word in your, on your own or with others. Seeking God in prayer together and uh, by yourself. His daily presence is a priceless gift that he mercifully offers. That's number two. Uh, thirdly, lastly, God gives his daily salvation. So David gets his bread, he gets Goliath's massive sword, and he hightails it out of the country to run away from Saul. And he runs to about the last place that you would expect him to go. He basically goes to like Israel's mortal enemy, the Philistines. Goes to one of their towns. It's a bold move. 
And uh, just for a little context, David killed 200 Philistines just for like a wedding gift to get his wife. Um, he killed their greatest warrior, Goliath, and then he's actually towing around his sword with like a pebble. Uh, and now he has the audacity to roll in on their home turf. Um, and David's a celebrity, so he's not going to go unnoticed, right? They're like, hey, isn't that David from, the, um, from that song we heard about? Be like, oh, isn't that so-and-so from the new Kesha song, right? Or something like that. Like, he's famous. He's not going to get unnoticed. This is what verse 12 says. Uh, after he gets recognized, which he surely does, he says, David took these words to heart when he's found out and was much afraid of the king of Gath. And in his fear and desperation, this is how he responds. So he changed his behavior and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So another move, uh, probably the most extreme one of desperation and deception David makes here. And you read this and think, does this, would this really work actually? And for some reason it does. Uh, the king of the Philistines either thinks that David's just not worth it anymore because he's crazy or maybe he mistakes him for someone else. But either way, uh, David's saved from yet a long line of life-threatening predicaments in his life. And this passage is not highlighting David's heroism or even his cleverness here. It's highlighting the daily salvation of a generous God. Because God, if you know, if you've been with us, God made a promise to David. He says, I'm going to have you sit on the throne as, pro as prince over my people. And even in dire circumstances, God is going to continue saving David um, from Saul, or he did from Goliath, from David's future son, betraying him from many other life-threatening things in his life. David's going to, God's going to continue to save him. No power, no plot, no plan against God's covenant people are going to outmaneuver his salvation. And I want, I want you to listen to a few words from Psalm 34. This is how David is proclaiming, describing God's salvation. And Psalm 34, if you don't know, is actually written in response to this story. This is what he says in verses 4 through 7. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So David's saying, if you belong to God, God literally, his presence encamps around you. For the Christian, we can certainly think of like physical salvation is, is applying here uh, like it did for David. I, I was kind of thinking about some close call moments um, in my life. I don't know if you've had those where it's like, wow, that was really close. I almost just like uh, really got hurt really bad there or that could have been really bad. I've had a lot of those in my life. I don't know what this says about me or maybe just God's grace towards me. Um, one I thought about was Jen was uh, when Jen was pregnant with our daughter. We had a baseball game, and uh, if you've been to a baseball game, you kind of have to like keep your attention, your ears perched, or your eyes uh, ready for like a baseball to come flying in, depending on where you're sitting. And we've been there for literally hours. Um, and Jen had to get up and go to the bathroom, as pregnant women uh, often have to do. And uh, literally, we were there sitting for hours, just in this seat. She gets up. Seconds after she gets up, this ball comes in flying in and just cracks her seat that she's in. Like, cracks the seat she was sitting in. I'm talking seconds after she got up. And that was one of those moments where, like, whew, God, look it out. Like, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and we can, we can look to God and say, God, you are a daily saving God. If, if I put my head down to the pillow safely at night, that's a saving grace. But, but God's daily salvation for us is, applies to so much more than our, our physical safety. 
And in Christ, God has made a covenant with, with each of you and with us as people. And there's a lot more pressing enemies to that than uh, physical danger. The sin in us constantly is seeking to destroy, destroy and distort the abundance God wants, God, uh, God wants uh, for you. So, yes, if you are in Christ, you have been saved once and for all from your sin, from the moment you received the saving work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection on the cross. Uh, and if that's not you, if you haven't done that, if you have not said, Jesus, I trust in your death, burial, and, and resurrection for the salvation to, for my sins, I would encourage you, that is the best lifelong, actually eternal long decision you could ever make, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. But being saved from our sins once and for all is a great joy, but we can't forget that God actually is daily saving us as well. Every day the Christian's being saved from his or her sin and being made into something new. Uh, the word we often use for this is called sanctification. And without God's daily saving grace from our sin, we would actually be lost. Uh, I love this prayer from a prayer book. It's called The Valley of Vision. Listen to this. It says, Oh God, it's amazing that men can talk so much about man's creaturely power and goodness when, if thou didst not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. If God stopped saving you from your sin for one day, you would be utterly consumed by it. If he just let you go, all goodness would be twisted, all your love would grow cold, and we would be consumed with evil and self-infatuation. And whenever you choose holiness over sin, or you choose justice over ease, or you choose integrity over gain, it's actually God's daily salvation playing out in you. My, uh, my favorite part of sanctification is that he's daily saving you from sin is, is that he's not just doing it for, uh, he's doing it for a purpose, uh, to make us into something new. I love how 2 Peter 1.4 says it. It says that we are granted his very precious and great promises so that through them you, Christian, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So God's inviting us, come share in my divine nature to become what we were meant to be, appointed representatives of God's holiness, love, justice, mercy, and character. Our God gives daily salvation so you can become a sharer of his glory. That's good news. So every day when you show love to someone, when you share a burden with someone, when you love the poor or you share Christ with someone, you actually, or you respond in mercy, it's God's daily salvation working itself out in you. And this makes a world of change in our day to day if we really believe this is true. If we believe this were true, we'd be desperate in prayer for God to save us from the sin that we know can destroy us. If we believe this were true, we'd realize there's, there's no sin that God cannot pull us from or no stronghold in our life that he cannot topple over. We cry out to him daily to give us his nature and his character. And when he actually gave it, we wouldn't gloat to each other. We'd say, man, it is just, it's only grace. We'd just be humbly grateful. Our God is a saving God, and he actually proves that in your and I's life every single day. When you don't deserve it, God dispenses his daily generosity. 
He's daily giving you mercy. He's daily giving you his presence, and he's daily saving you from sin for his glory. Our God is so generous, isn't he? Preparing this week, I've been just so aware, so keenly aware of how quickly we forget these realities or how quickly they become mundane. Uh, because this miraculous grace and generosity is so regular, because it's so, in a sense, normal for us, it becomes mundane. I, I hate it, but it just happens so easily. And this is why Paul told us things like in uh, Colossians 3.16. He tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what he's saying is we all need to practice the ministry of reminder to one another. You're, you are responsible to remind me of God's daily generosity. And I'm responsible to remind you of God's daily generosity in your life. And what's the end goal of this? Just wholehearted worship. We remember, we sing, we create art, we meditate on, we share uh, through evangelism, God's daily grace through Christ in worship. This generous God's worthy of the, wor the worship of every single atom in the universe. So let's, let's join the chorus. Let's fight to remind each other of the God that dispenses daily grace to his people for all eternity. Let's pray now and ask him to make that a reality. Father, you are the one our hearts uh, long for. At the same time, we long for so many other things. And so, God, I pray that you would make our profession reality. You would make the confession that we have um, of Jesus, uh, the reality in our hearts every day. Help our church be ones that daily remind one another of how generous you are. That there's no good thing you withhold because you have given us the best thing in your son. And God, transform us to be a, a people that are so generous, that are so merciful, that people can't help but look at us and be like, what is going on? What is going on with those people? Help our friendships be transformed, our parenting be transformed, our work be transformed, our play be transformed by your mercy. And I pray that it would just result in worship and praise. Enlarge our appetites for you and help us worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.